Good evening, it's Doug Taylor again, and welcome to Proverbs episode 6. Glad to have you here. And uh, just a couple of logistics. Uh, You've all been here before, so you know how it works with the microphone. Feel free to use it if you would like, or type in questions uh, on screen if you prefer that approach. Um, We will, looks like, have class through most of August. We, at this point, will not have class on August 30th and September 6th, so two weeks in a row there, uh, but we should be having class up until then, So, and I'll keep you notified uh, as we get closer. Uh, before we begin, any questions left over from our previous classes or anything that uh, you have a, a hankering to want to cover tonight, apart from the verses we're lined up to do? <coughs> Okay, I'll I'll take no response as a uh, as a proceed forward, but feel free to let me know. So we are on uh, we are uh, in the book of Proverbs, chapter ten, and we're starting now with verse ten, and the translation reads, "He who winks causes sadness, and a fool with his lips will be destroyed. He who winks causes sadness." and a fool with his lips will be destroyed. So before we get to trying to figure out what in the world that means, what are the questions we would want to ask that would help potentially guide us there? What questions come to mind as you read that? He who winks causes sadness, and a fool with his lips will be destroyed. What are the questions we should be asking? Okay, Omar, very good. Don't understand the first part. So it says, he who winks causes sadness. What is that? Uh, How does that work? Why would a wink cause sadness? And first of all, we might ask, what's a wink? And then, what does it mean it causes sadness? People wink all the time. So, okay, very good. Uh, Anybody else? Question? So let me me raise a couple more. When it says a fool with his lips, why does it say that? Why doesn't it just say a fool will be destroyed? Why does it particularly tell us a fool with his lips will be destroyed? And then, why? In other words, the verse is saying that a fool with his lips will be destroyed. Why will that happen? So we've got a couple questions on the table. What's a wink? What's this first part mean? And then what does the wording in the second part mean? And how does it all work? And then we can ask, What does one half of this have to do with the other half? Because generally, as we've talked before, these verses are set up to be uh, generally an opposite of a fool and a wise person, good and bad, uh, evil and righteous, whatever it might be. So let me start. Oh, and let me... uh, just to go back to the comments. So, Omar, you mentioned we are judged by our words. Okay, that 
would be true. Uh, and, and actually that would be true, I think, both in this world and the world to come. And the, the focus we have on Proverbs here is the world uh, that we live in today, uh, the practical world. And people do judge each other by the words that come out of their mouths. We form judgments all the time uh, based on what we hear. Okay, And Eva, you've mentioned we get into trouble with words. Oh, we certainly do. Uh, and so, and we'll see as we go through here how that particular idea is going to play out into this. I'd like to start by suggesting uh, a, something about the wink. A wink is when I'm trying to hint to you about something that I don't want other people to know. So you've all been in a situation where, you know, well, let's say you're in a room of uh, five or ten people and you're sitting around a table and one person is droning on and on and you look at one of your friends across the room and maybe they roll their eyeballs or they they wink a little bit or they're that wink is that they're trying to hint to you about something that they don't want to tell everybody else and so winks in the context of this verse represent trying to do harm in a hidden way uh, it's like you like a person raises an eyebrow or, or rolls their eyes as if to say you know boy that guy is really a jerk it's it's a hint it's just a little subtle nonverbal communication that is uh, in the context of this verse is a negative so when a person winks like that they're essentially destroying a person without them even knowing it so if, if there's three people in the conversation and one person is talking and I turn and wink to the other person uh, I may be trying to send that other person a message that's negative about the person who's talking without them knowing okay so it's this sort of secret thing. Yeah, Eve, it's, it's body talk. It's, it's a way of getting across a message, uh, and in this case a negative one, without the other person knowing about it. Now, by contrast, the fool with his lips opens his mouth and makes his emotions very, very clear. So if he's upset with you, you know that he's upset. If he's in a bad mood, you know he's in a bad mood. Uh, if he's, uh, you know, scheming to get at you, you know it because he just opens up his lips and lets it all out there, makes his emotions very, very clear to everyone. So if we look at the two parts of the verse, what we've got is about two people who want to do harm, but they're going about it differently. The first one, in the first half, is doing it in secret, in a hidden way. And the second person, in the second half, is doing it openly. So I'd like to suggest that's, the, that's a start of the kind of the subject of the verse. People wanting to do harm, but different ways they do it. Now, I should pause and point out, a wink doesn't always have to be a bad thing. But the verse is referring to a case where it's a harm. <clears throat> there can be a wink that is just a friendly, you know, kind of thing and doesn't have any negative connotation to it. But here we're talking about 
a wink that's intended to do harm. Now, the fool with his lips says he'll be destroyed. Why is that? Can you, can you guess as to why a fool with his lips would be destroyed? If he just blurts out what's on his mind? Why would that person potentially be destroyed? Any thoughts? Okay, Eva, yep, they will hurt others. And what's the consequence when they do that? And Omar, it looks like you're about to write something there, so let me hold up for just a second. Okay, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time can get us killed. Yes, and let's take that then down to the micro level here. The fool with his lips, because he speaks so openly, he lets you know that he's out to get you. And so you're now in a position to know, oh, this guy's after me. And so you can defend yourself and thereby defeat him. So if you're, you know, in some kind of a situation of interaction with other people and uh, one person is very, very angry and upset with you and opens up his mouth and blurts it all out there and makes it very clear that he wants to destroy you, he's now basically tipped his hand and let you know, oh, wow, that guy wants to destroy me. I better take some steps to protect myself. On the other hand, the person who tries to destroy you in secret through the wink causes sadness because the person will have no way of protecting himself from that. In other words, I, if, if I'm uh, uh, the one who is, say, you know, speaking in a group and someone else winks to somebody else with sort of that secret idea of, you know, this guy's a jerk, let's get rid of him, I will have no way of knowing that that went on. And so I will not have any way of protecting myself from that. So a person has to stop and think whether a person in a particular circumstance is really a true friend or not. And this brings up a very interesting point that is true in both personal lives and in my experience in professional and business lives. And that is that the best way to protect yourself is generally to only talk on a need-to-know basis. Generally, you don't want to give out more information about yourself or about a situation than the other person actually needs because you don't know whether that person will, in a moment of anger, let that information out and potentially use it against you. Okay. And Eva, I'm, did you want to take the microphone there? Okay. So this is, of course, very true in war. And Omar, you mentioned, you know, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time could get us killed in World War II. They had that motto, loose lips sink ships. But even on an everyday basis, sometimes sharing information with a person, if you are not completely sure that they will be 
uh, 100% uh, keep that information 100% confidential can put you potentially in jeopardy and so you have to be somewhat careful and circumspect about what you tell to other people this also by the way has the added advantage uh, of um, keeping us from out of the the trap of Lashon Hara or gossip uh, because the less we say then the less we say and that uh, that can avoid that so and Omar you've raised the question so this verse doesn't really have two opposites um, it has two different ways that people sometimes deal with the situation but in this case not necessarily a true opposite in the sense of hot and cold, uh, rich and poor, and, and that type of opposite. So every verse is not always that way, but generally we're looking for some kind of a contrast uh, or some kind of a difference between the first half of a verse uh, and the second. There are some verses that are not structured that way, so we have to be sensitive to that. Now, <clears throat> the verse doesn't say to whom the person is giving sadness when it says he who winks causes sadness and we gave one uh, interpretation here that uh, it's it's the person who might be the the ultimate receiver of uh, some kind of harm but the Ibn Ezra says that the person who winks gives sadness to himself so that raises a question of what in the world does that mean what could the Ibn Ezra mean when he says that a person who winks causes sadness to himself? Any thoughts or ideas about how that might work? Well, let's go down that road a little bit and see if we can come up with something. Suppose the guy in the first half of the verse, the one who winks and causes sadness, gets his vengeance or his anger on another person, the person who he was winking about. You know, he managed to do it in secret, the other person didn't see it coming, wasn't able to protect himself, and got smushed. Whatever smushed looks like in this context could be verbally, could be financially, could be... Uh, any number of ways. So the first guy who was mad at this, at, at this guy he got vengeance on had an outlet for his, his emotions. I mean, he, he was successful in getting vengeance on this guy. So in what way is he harming himself? Because the Ibn Ezra is saying, well, it gives sadness to him. So let's consider this. Person A is upset with person B. Now, person A can have an outlet against person B in one of two ways. One is, he can yell and scream and tell him off. Okay? But, he then, in one sense, has failed in his mission because he's, very, he's made it very clear to B that he's an enemy of B and B will thus be able to protect himself and defeat A's plans, as we talked about. <clears throat> the second case is that A causes harm to B, and B doesn't even know that A did it. So B can't get back at A. And A had an outlet 
because he got his anger out on B. So again, we have got to ask, what's the Ibn Ezra saying here? Where's the sadness that he's causing himself? And the sadness, I would suggest, is that person A is unhealthy in general. He may have a temporary outlet for his unhappiness, but his whole life is a life of unhappiness. Why is that? Because clearly there's a mistake here. I mean, if a guy goes out and gets vengeance on somebody else, okay, you'd think he would enjoy getting vengeance on the other person. But what, in fact, is the cause for a person to plan out and enjoy getting the other guy? Okay, and Omar, you suggested, okay, full of bitterness. Very good. Very good. And how would a life of bitterness affect your relationships to other people? If you're that person that's bitter and unhappy and you want to get vengeance on somebody else, how is that going to affect your relationships and how you view other people? Any thoughts on that? I'd suggest that what the Ibn Ezra is getting at is the mistake that this person is making is around how they view their relationships with other people. If a righteous person is hurt by someone else, he won't seek vengeance because vengeance won't do anything. I mean, to the righteous person, this is just a practical thing. How do I protect myself from harm? A particular harm in this case. And a righteous person probably wouldn't look at it any differently of, you know, how do I protect myself from this angry person is, how do I protect myself from this angry dog? And I'm not comparing a person with a dog. When an angry dog comes after you, it's a very practical thing. We don't sit there and say, and, and take it personally that the dog is, is, you know, growling at us. It's just like, okay, that's a, a thing in nature that I need to deal with. Um, so it wouldn't matter whether it was protection from a potentially vicious dog or a certain business situation or a certain financial situation or from another person. To the righteous, it's just a practical thing. And the key is, he is not emotionally invested in it. To him, it's just problem solving. The whole thing is about problem solving. He doesn't take it personally. It's just a practical thing. But the guy who wants vengeance, he looks at the other person that they really want to harm him. It's not a practical thing to him. He's not looking at that other person in a realistic manner. He's seeing him as an opponent. Somebody I've got to beat. Somebody I've got to win against. I'm in a competition. i got to put this other guy down. I mean, it's a very, very personal thing to him. So he takes action against the person, which is in contrast with the righteous who only sees it as a very practical thing. It's not about the other guy. It's only to protect himself from harm, and once he's protected himself from harm, he's done. So if your view of life 
is that every time someone attacks you, it's a personal thing, then you can never really be happy because you're constantly in conflict with everybody around you. You're constantly on the jump. So the key is to change your view so that you don't see other people as opponents. And that can be particularly difficult in our society because our society is heavily based on the whole idea of competition. You know, we gotta win against the other guy. Gotta beat him. And, and movies and, you know, TV shows and that kind of thing really uh, uplift this idea of not just I gotta win against the other guy, but I gotta really put him down. I mean, you know, we're gonna just, you know, really, really trounce him. But the righteous just see it as a practical thing. Uh, so, if you change your view so that you see other people not as opponents, but just as, you know, practical issues I have to deal with, then you end up taking action when it's necessary to protect yourself in the same way that you have to take action to protect yourself from other harms in life that come along, like, you know, a cold rain or a fire or anything else. Uh, otherwise, every time you're uh, in an opponent's situation with somebody, you'll have this strong emotional desire that you have to win, which will put you constantly in conflict because you're always having to beat somebody at something. And probably you've run into people like this who, you know, their whole life and everything is competition against someone. If you meet them at a cocktail party, you know, and you uh, share what happened on your vacation. Well, they got to tell you that their vacation was better or that, you know, you had this really nice experience at a restaurant. Well, yeah, but, you know, if you want to go to a better restaurant, it's here. Or, you know, you're telling somebody about the new car you got. Yeah, but if you'd really gotten the best car, it would have been this. There's this constant competition thing, you know, of having to be one up on someone, which puts you in a, a constant conflict situation. So the truly righteous person who sees life in a very practical way and doesn't get emotionally invested in these things is in the best position uh, to live a life of happiness. So to, going back, Omar, to your point about the two opposites, we've got two people in this verse, both of whom are going to live sad lives. Uh, the one who winks causes sadness uh, both to the other person and to himself, and the fool with his lips, he's going to be destroyed because he opens his mouth and lets all his emotions open and sets himself up so that uh, he's going to be unsuccessful in his, his dealings with people. Okay, let me pause and see if there are any questions on that verse. Does that make sense to people? I'll assume no response is a yes unless you tell me otherwise. Okay, let's move on. Proverbs chapter 10, next verse is verse 11. And it reads, The source of life is the mouth of the tzaddik, the righteous person, and the mouth of the wicked hides violence. The source of life is the mouth of the righteous person, and the mouth of the wicked hides violence. Okay? And you all probably know what I'm going to ask next, and that is, what are the questions? What questions would we want to ask around that verse? What doesn't make sense? What isn't clear? What don't we understand? The source of life 
is the mouth of the righteous, and the mouth of the wicked hides violence. What questions come to mind? Anything that's not clear, or is the verse completely clear and everybody understands completely what it means? So if I can, if I can push for a response for a little bit, if you completely understand the verse, would you type in, I completely understand the verse? If parts of it are unclear, can you say, not sure, or something like that, and let me know what you're thinking. And Anna and Teresa, if you have uh, microphones on your computer, you are also welcome to speak. And what you need to do is just click on the microphone icon in the lower left corner. That'll bring a little thought bubble up next to your name in the lower box. And then I release the microphone. You can speak. Then you click that mic button again and it releases it. You may be familiar with this. Um, okay. And Omar, you said, your art scroll says the mouth of the wicked conceals their intended violence. Okay? That would be, I think, a similar interpretation to the mouth of the wicked hides violence. So, here are some questions that I might pose. It says the source of life is the mouth of the tzaddik. What is the source of life? We need to identify what that means in order to understand what this verse means. What was King Solomon trying to get at when he said the source of life? And why would it be found in the mouth of the righteous? So for once we figure out what it is, then we'd have to ask, well, why is it there? Why would he refer to it in the mouth of the righteous, as opposed to maybe with the righteous or with somebody else or some other place? Next question, when it says the mouth of the wicked hides violence, what does that mean? How, how does the mouth of someone hide violence? Violence we usually think of as, you know, you pick up a rock and throw it at somebody, or uh, you do something that's violent, uh, some very destructive action against someone. But what's it mean that, the, that it's in the mouth of the wicked, or that the mouth of the wicked hides that, and then one last question. It says that from the mouth of the righteous you get the source of life. So it seems that it shouldn't say the mouth of the wicked hides violence. It should say you get the opposite of the source of life from the mouth of the wicked. So what does the first half have to do with the second half? Because they don't seem to be referring to exactly the same thing. Okay, and Omar, you wrote words of wisdom. Uh, I'm going to guess that was in response to the question, what's the source of life? Uh, and you can let me know if I'm wrong in my interpretation there. Okay, and that I, I think is, is very close to 
what I'm going to suggest as a starting point here. So let's start with that question. What's the source of the tzaddik's life? And I want to suggest that the source of the tzaddik's life is how he makes decisions. The source of the righteous person's life is how he makes decisions. That's kind of where everything starts from, is how a person makes decisions. And so let's talk for a little bit about the difference between how a righteous person makes a decision and how a wicked person makes a decision. We've seen that, that Mishle, the book of Proverbs, takes a very practical view of life. We have to view life in a practical way and analyze it so that we can see what the truth is. But the desire of the wicked, when he tries to make decisions, part of his decision-making is involved in denying reality. He, he, he tries to deny reality. I mean, a child who doesn't do his homework denies that there are any consequences until he becomes so totally involved in his denial that he denies reality altogether. So, is it possible for a person to see the consequences of something and still not act on those consequences? And I want to suggest that that is impossible. That, in those cases, the person doesn't really believe that the consequences will happen to it. Ah, they may accept that society says there is a consequence for something, or that some authority says there's a consequence, but if the person doesn't act on it, I would suggest to you that the consequence isn't real to them. So consider, for example, a teenager who starts to smoke. Okay? The idea of getting cancer isn't real to him. Because if it truly was real, if the idea of sitting in the oncology ward with you know, terminal emphysema and coughing and hacking was truly real to him, he wouldn't be able to do it. And even if he says, oh, I know I could get cancer, but he keeps doing it anyway, what he's saying is that society says I might get cancer, and he's just saying what society is saying. But it's not real to him. The consequences aren't real. So the, the source of life for the righteous person is their decision. Now what about hiding violence? What is this idea of the mouth of the wicked hides violence? The Ibn Ezra says that the wicked person doesn't want to view life correctly. So if that's true, then we could ask, well, where's the violence part, according to the Ibn Ezra? And the answer is that if you want the source of life, in other words, you want to know how to really make decisions, then you go to the righteous person. But if you listen to the wicked, that is hiding violence. Why? Because he's going to tell you to have your immediate pleasure now. And what he's hiding is the consequences that are going to occur if you listen to him. He covers up the violence, meaning the consequences of your immediate actions. 
He's not going to point those out to you. He'll only point out the immediate pleasure, and he'll deny those consequences so you'll avoid thinking about them altogether. So that is the violence that he's hiding. It's the consequences. I mean, to take an extreme case, some guy that's trying to convince you to shoot up heroin is going to talk to you about the great feeling you'll get and how, how nice life will be and da-da-da-da-da. Okay? He is not going to tell you about the downstream consequences of being strung out on heroin or that you'll get addicted to it and that it'll drain all your money and destroy your life and so on and so forth. He's going to talk to you about the immediate pleasure. The violence that he's hiding is the real consequence of your action. So, uh, that's what it means by the mouth of the wicked is hiding violence. It's, from the Ibn Ezra standpoint, it's that he's hiding the consequences that will eventually catch up with you. <clears throat> that you don't see because you're going for the immediate pleasure whereas the source of real life is in the mouth of the righteous which is a person who will teach you how to really make decisions on the basis of what's true in reality and note that we saw the second half of this verse uh, the mouth of the wicked hides violence in verse 6 a few sessions back where we were talking about secrets. But it seems that in this verse, King Solomon is pointing to a different meaning of uh, the phrase, the mouth of the wicked hides violence, talking about consequences and the, the proper way to make decisions. Okay, any questions about that? Is that clear to everybody so far? Okay, uh, let's move on. Next verse, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred starts fights or quarrels, and love covers over all faults. Let me repeat. Hatred starts fights or quarrels, and love covers over all faults. So, any questions around that verse? Let me just pause and wait for people typing in responses. The second part can be kind of tough. Love covers over all faults. Yes, it can. And let me ask a question. Do you think the second half is better than the first half? What do you all think? I think the second half is, is better than the first half, or that King Solomon is saying the second half is the preferred approach? Or not? What do you think? Okay, Omar, second half is better. Alright, anybody else?
Okay. So, I'd suggest that here's the question. The verse doesn't seem to point to which one is better, like good and evil. It just seems to be pointing out two simple facts. Hatred starts fights, and love covers over all faults. It also doesn't say whether there are consequences or anything like that. So, we've got to ask ourselves the question, why is King Solomon telling us this? What is he trying to point to, or what does he want us to get out of this? And the commentator, the Ralbag, points out that where a person has hatred, he'll find fault even where there is no fault. So he'll start a fight when there isn't any. And by contrast, love will overlook problems even when there are problems. Okay, so let me repeat that. What the Ralbag is saying is that a person, when a person has hatred, he'll find fault even when there is no fault. So he'll start a fight when there isn't really a fight there to be had. And by contrast, love will overlook problems even when there are problems. So what could we conclude from that? What could we potentially conclude from that? Any thoughts? If hatred finds fault even when there isn't any, and love overlooks problems even when there are problems, what's possibility? Okay, Omar, you said it's better to love and forgive. Okay, what if you were facing an Adolf Hitler? Would it be better to love and forgive in that circumstance? Let me pause here. Ah, uh, okay. Like you said in the beginning, the second part is tough. That's fair. That's fair. So let me suggest an approach. Um, and it was one that, if I recall, surprised me a little bit when I first heard it. And that is that any extreme emotion is a problem. When you have an extreme emotion, you can't see reality. When you have hatred, for example, which is pretty extreme, you'll see problems where there aren't any. You know, everybody's out to get you, that guy obviously cut me off from traffic, you know, all those people are there just to make my life difficult, you know, when, when you're in hatred you see problems where there aren't any problems. But on the flip side, when you have love, you won't see problems where there are problems, so that you won't be able to protect yourself or help another person who you may be involved with. So love 
which is highly touted today, can also be a dangerous emotion because it can cloud your view of reality. Now, I want to make a contrast in something Omar wrote there uh, when he says, better love and forgive. There's a difference between uh, just loving and forgiveness. Uh, if if a person goes about life, as you probably run into uh, folks who do, and it's just like, oh, I love everybody and I love everything and love is just fine and it, uh, you know, it doesn't matter or whatever, that person's going to find themselves eventually in some difficulty because they won't be in a position to protect themselves and uh, will not see problems clearly when they do arise because things come up and they have to be dealt with. Um, so, Sue, you're absolutely right. We need a balance. Um, and so that's why Mishle essentially teaches that you shouldn't make decisions based on emotions. And particularly, this verse seems to be suggesting that you should not make decisions based on love or hate, because both of those are extreme emotions. Now, there's certainly an appropriate place for love, but there's also an appropriate place for hate. Um, and so what we have to do is, uh, as Sue said, uh, avoid the extremes and, and find a balance in between so that we can see reality clearly and know when to deal with a situation that might be a real fight or a quarrel or when to deal with a situation that is a real fault that needs to be uh, needs to be dealt with. If, for example, uh, I were running a business and I uh, discovered that you know one of my employees was uh, uh, addicted to drugs and, and openly using them while uh, on the job, if I said, "Well, but he's such a nice guy and I love him," and the loving thing to do would be to just you know. Um, do my best to support him and send him home with his paycheck every day, uh, that would be the wrong answer uh, because that would not help him and I would simply be overlooking a real problem that needs to be dealt with and no one would be better off by my overlooking that problem. Uh, no one would win in a situation like that. So, um, that raises a tangential question. God wanted to create a being that would have free will. Problem is, anytime God creates, he creates the nature of that being. So once he creates that being, how could that being have free will? So, for example, consider a bear, or a lion, or a sheep. Once it's created, it has to live according to the nature that God gave it. So if God wants free will, how could he create something with free will? Because once it's created, it would have to live according to its nature. Just as bears and lions and sheep do. So I'll suggest to you that God created a being with two natures. The two natures are the emotions and the intellect, the latter being wisdom. And the system of psychology 
is a system that could be construed to be designed to help a human being see the world from an irrational point of view. The other viewpoint is a scientific view of life or a rational view of life. So you've got these two things. You've got your emotions and your intellect. The intellect has the capability to let you see the reality. The emotions uh, tend to cloud reality. And God created a being with both of those operating. So that's why this verse says that both hatred and love make you see the world from an irrational point of view. The verse doesn't say you shouldn't have love, but love shouldn't be the decision maker in your life. And that takes us back to the last verse, which is about how the righteous person makes a decision, and it's based on wisdom. So it's important for me to emphasize this doesn't mean you shouldn't have emotions. Emotions are part of us. That's you. You can't get rid of your emotions. That's it's part and parcel of what we get as a human being. It just means that that part of you shouldn't be the decision maker. And you should use your intellect to decide on an appropriate outlet for your emotions, one that won't have negative consequences for you. So the verse, again, is pointing out two contrasts, two ends of the emotional extreme spectrum. One is hatred and the other is love. And it's suggesting that neither of those is the right way to make decisions because you'll note that the verse says, you know, hatred starts fights, which isn't something that's good, and love covers all faults, which is also not something that's good because, again, you overlook a problem if it's there. Okay, let me pause and see if there are any questions on this. Okay, does this make sense? Okay. I will assume yes. Um, thanks, Sue. Appreciate that. Thank you, Omar. So it looks like we have time potentially for one more verse. And that's chapter 10, verse 13. And that verse reads, In the words of the understanding one, you'll find wisdom, and a stick for the back of a person that lacks knowledge. Let me repeat it. In the words of the understanding one, you'll find wisdom, and a stick for the back of a person that lacks knowledge. So, what are the questions? What are the questions? In the words of the understanding one, you'll find wisdom and a stick for the back of a person that lacks knowledge. Does the verse make complete sense to you, or is there something there that doesn't make complete sense? Well, let me ask a couple questions. What does it mean that you'll find wisdom in the words of the understanding one? That's a question. And then, 
What is this part in the second about a stick for the back of a person that lacks knowledge? If a person lacks knowledge, let, let's, let's uh, you know, take somebody you know who lacks knowledge. Do you think that hitting them will help? Because it seems like that's what the verse is saying. You know, if you just hit somebody, that'll solve the problem. And I suggest to you, that doesn't look like it works. You know? I'm not aware of anybody that, you know, necessarily uh, suddenly gains knowledge or wisdom when somebody hits them. And then, what's the first half have to do with the second half? Because the first half talks about words of the understanding one, but the second half doesn't talk about the words of one who lacks knowledge, because you'd think it would say, and in the words of the person who lacks knowledge, you'll find a lack of wisdom. So, again, that question of, what does the first half have to do with the second half? So, let me suggest to you that an intelligent person will learn from knowledge. An intelligent person will listen to the words of the wise, and he'll learn from those words, and he'll change his life based on that knowledge. That is, I think, the... Uh, uh, the ideal Torah inquisitive life. Uh, to sit at the feet of the wise, to hear their words, to listen to them, to review them, to ruminate over them, learn from them, and ultimately to change your life based on that knowledge. Uh, one of the things that I covered in uh, the fundamentals class is a principle that uh, was shared with me by one of my mentors, which is the only way you make real behavior change is when an idea is clear to your mind. Uh, I mean, you can get behavior change by holding a gun to someone's head, but that's not real behavior change. That's just forced action. Real behavior change, when you really get it, comes from understanding an idea and seeing it clearly. So the intelligent person is uh, going to listen to the words of the wise. So one who understands, uh, there you'll find wisdom. Now, the fool is only going to change his ways based on force, not by knowledge, but by a situation or someone who forces him. And in fact, if he does the correct thing, it's not because his mind sees it, it's because he's forced to do it. Because by definition, the fool is not, uh, the person who lacks knowledge, is not going to uh, be able to operate on the basis of that knowledge, because he doesn't have it, and therefore is going to make mistakes. Now, another way that we could learn that verse is that the the words the words of the wise uh, should also be read as part of the second half of the verse. So, thus it would read uh, something like, "In the words of the intelligent, you'll find wisdom." and his words will be like a stick to the back of a fool. Now, the words of the, of the wise person are essentially truth and reality. So when the fool hears those words of truth and reality, they hurt so much that it's like a stick on his back. It's a very distasteful thing because it's so against his emotions that he hates what the wise person has to say. 
and so it is like a stick on his back. So there's two different ways we can learn the verse. Uh, one is that the intelligent person will learn from knowledge and le listen to the words of the wise, while the fool uh, will only be changed based on force. Uh, and, and that stick for the back is a uh, metaphor for some kind of force, someone forcing in a situation, whatever. And the other way we can learn it is that uh, in the words of the, uh, the wise or the intelligent, you'll find wisdom and his words will be like a stick to the back of the fool because they hurt so much because they go against the emotions of the fool. Uh, and so it is like a stick on his back. Okay. Any questions on those verses? Any questions on the approach that we're taking? Does this all make sense? I mean, you'll see that King Solomon is basically coming at some of the same ideas over and over, but from, uh, from, from different angles, different points of view. And he's trying to show you, case by case by case, how the life of the, the righteous and the wise is superior to the life of the foolish and the wicked. Uh, and yes, that's true in the world to come, but Michelet is really focused on what's going on right now in this life, today. And, you know, the work that you have to do if, if you're at a job or with your family or with interacting with other people or going to the store or whatever it might be. Uh, the, uh, the life of the righteous is, is the best life you can have. And uh, it just takes continual learning and knowledge and uh, understanding and thinking over those ideas and constantly reviewing them. That's why the study of this book is so important on a continual basis. Even if it's just this one hour a week that uh, we have together, because over time what happens without you realizing it is those ideas begin to affect you just a little tiny bit at a time and uh, pretty soon you find yourself starting to ask questions and deal with life situations just a little bit differently. And it's not something you have to work at or that you can force. It just comes naturally by a review and understanding uh, of the ideas that King Solomon is presenting to us. Okay, uh, I see we're just a couple minutes before, a few minutes before six, uh, and I don't think we have time to tackle one more verse. Any questions? Uh, before we close up for for the week. Okay, if not, then I wish you all a great week. If you have questions, uh, please feel free to email me at doug at thinkingdynamics.com and I'll be happy to do my best to uh, uh, try to get some answers for you. In the meantime, I wish for all of you a great week and hope to have you join us next week. Thanks very much.